Matthew 16, verses 21 and following. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Each and every phrase, jot, tittle, passage, chapter, book that you have graciously preserved for us. I pray that in our time together this morning, we would be drawn ever closer to Jesus, that the image of you, O God, put in man from the beginning, corrupted by the fall and by our own actual sins, will continue to be reversed in your gracious working in us by your Holy Spirit as you bring your word to bear. I pray that for even now, as I speak and as your people hear, guide us in all truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the point I was wanting to get to in the James passage is one of those sort of ironies of wording that often biblical writers point out. That what seems true on the face of it to us in our humanness is very different. Because of our fallenness, we see things wrong, we put wrong priorities. So what the world glories in is not what the Christian should glory in. And as I kept coming, as I said to this example in Jesus' life, the key thing, of course, is death, humiliation, suffering are not what the world would look for. But it was essential to Jesus' ministry. And the roadmap, as it were, that he lays out here in verses 21, uh, the four clauses we'll be going through, uh, are essential to his ministry. He could not set them aside. And not, this is not the only place he says it. In uh, three other places in Matthew's gospel, uh, there are parallel texts in the other gospel writers. It's in Matthew 16 here, chapter 17, uh, chapter 20. I'm sorry, there's four instances. Also in chapter 26. So if Jesus says it once, it's worth paying attention to, right? If he says it briefly, we must not skip over it. If he says it four times in one book and then repeated in other gospel writers, all the more important for us to attend to. I know that when I give a little heads up, some instruction to my children, I of course desire, and we've all been instructed recently, that we should have cheerful and attentive response to that, so our children should do the same. I'm not surprised if they miss it, if they don't key in on the... Uh, importance that I placed in that first saying, so I pray that we here, in recognizing that Jesus has said this multiple times, would get the point, right? <laughs> that we would, by grace, be attentive to what he says. It is significant, and uh, there's much noise in our heads in daily life. There's 
many books, there's many chapters, uh, but this is an important part. So, bears repeating these four aspects to his ministry road that lay ahead at that point. As you can see that they're on the outline. To Jerusalem, to be betrayed and suffered at the hands of men, to be killed and raised on the third day. So while men, in our humanness, in our desire to be comfortable, in our desire to be liked, to have status and power, we don't walk these roads. It's not our choice. We often are successful in obtaining material wealth, which is one of the focuses of that James text. But that is not always the way of the cross. True virtue, true success, true love for Christ in laying down his life for us entailed fulfilling his Father's will, laying down his life for his friends. Jesus' life indeed was effective because he had a purpose, he knew what it was, and he stayed on course to the end. Self-seeking and self-preservation are not the way of Christ. The rich man of James 1 will be sorely humiliated. Jesus' way is the way of the lowly, the way of the cross, and the way he would have us to go through victory in him. Amen? So with that, let us turn to our text here in Matthew 16. We'll be spending the majority of the time on the several clauses in chapter 21, and then sort of rounding it out in our conclusion with the verses that finish this section. So let's begin, uh, actually, with part of an introduction in your outlines. It's point A there, the must. But really, the must uh, alters And it uh, speaks to all four of these steps. It's a must of compulsion. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must be raised. None of these are optional. It was necessary as an alternate translation. It was right and proper. Uh, The same word is employed at at other instances in this gospel, speaking of the fact that Elijah must come before the Messiah. We must attend to the weighty and, as well, the lesser matters of the law. It must happen this way, and that's a general statement about the resurrection and such, to fulfill the scriptures. That's at the end of Matthew 26. So that is to say, this is the way it needs to be. It couldn't, shouldn't, must not happen any other way. No getting out of it. No other option but for Jesus to set his face toward Jerusalem and complete the work that the Father had prepared for him. Jesus was clearly occupied with this divine requirement. He knew his mission, and he desired to fulfill it. So again, all four of these, he desired, and he had the commitment. He knew he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised. By way of application, friends, uh, for us to consider what is necessary, uh, what is right, proper, and essential for our actions. Uh, There are some things that are broadly true for all of us as Christians, and that's what James in 1, chapter 1 there, refers to the brother. So that's all Christians, right, must glory in the right things. So there is a general status of us as Christians, universal for all believers, to die to ourselves to be alive in Christ, to love your neighbor above yourself, to seek personal holiness. No matter your calling, no matter your gender, no matter your age, that is universal for all of us. These are things we all must do. Additionally, there's more specific callings. Pastor Kaiser referred to this in his 
uh, communion meditation. Fathers or mothers have different callings because of our different roles. Whether you're called to be a lawyer or a pastor or a sheriff or a caretaker of the home, these are different specific callings. Each has their musts, their must-dos, their necessities according to that calling. And it is a very good thing. It uh, should be a peace-giving thing to know your calling, not to question, what am I doing here? What, I was doing this last week. What should I do next week? Right? To know your calling can give great peace, great focus, great determination as you follow the Lord unflinchingly wherever he is taking you. So that is the must. And again, it applies to the other four, all four of these things that Jesus looked forward to. So now let's look, let us get to each of those. So to Jerusalem. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So that's a specific destination, geographical, right? It was a place. A few things about the significance of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it was founded by pagans. It was not a city founded by God's people directly. Uh, under the rule of David, it was established as the capital city of the United Empire. It rose to further preeminence under Solomon as the temple was located there. And of course, once the Jews were kicked out, as it were, when they returned, where did they return to? To Jerusalem. So it kept being a more and more focal point of God's working in the history of his people. And in Jesus' day, as we come across it here in Matthew's gospel, Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religion, and it was the administrative center of local Roman rule. So it's no wonder then that to Jerusalem he must go to confront the religious and the civil authorities of his day and fulfill many prophecies. He must go to Jerusalem. To apply this to our universal calling, brothers and sisters, where are we headed? What is our destination? I would suggest it is the Jerusalem above. Very interesting that the Bible author picks up on the Jerusalem language when he speaks of heaven and our calling as Christians. It is worded that way in Galatians 4. Freedom in Christ to walk by faith and love and serve our God is that Jerusalem above. Everything that our earthly walk is supposed to be, the perfection of it, is that Jerusalem above. So friends, know our destination. Keep your eyes focused on that destination. Second, what was the second thing that Jesus knew he must do? There in the middle of verse 21. Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. It's interesting, to me at least, that he doesn't mention the insults of the people. It wasn't just from the authorities that he suffered wrong. The crowd crying out at his sham trial, crucify him, crucify him. Would that have hurt you? Would that have been painful to have people who said they were Jews, who were members of that at least outward household of God, to have them calling for his execution? But that's not what he focuses on here. And nor, I should say, before I get on to that, he also didn't comment on the negligence of the Roman rulers, right? They did not follow their own procedures for a proper trial. They didn't call for proper witnesses and all of that. But that's not who Jesus zeroes in on here. This is not part of the must. The must is suffering things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. So 
there's going to be many injures, injuries that we're going to experience, some more significant than others. But let us recognize that there will be these various facets and that we must endure through them all. But focusing on the suffering, so one thing that uh, two types of suffering, two groups that cause suffering that he set aside, but even in the one he addresses, note that it's multifaceted, elders, chief priests, and scribes. Collectively, they refer to the authority figures, that authority structure within the Jewish religion of that time. Within that, I want to focus on two subsets, what I'll call the physical as well as the social suffering that he received. He was whipped and impaled with the crown of thorns. Of course, that was directly at the hands of the Romans, but at the encouragement of those Jewish authorities. He was mocked, right, insulted, all at the encouragement of these authorities who should have upheld him as their king. By social, I refer to the aspects of him being an outcast. Uh, This is noted in Luke's account of this incident, where he records Jesus saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. We all know the pain, humanly speaking, that comes from being left off the invitation list for a party or people not consulting with you when you might be available for that event you really wanted to be a part of or having a friend turn their back on you. How much more the pain of having the people of the whole nation turn their back on the true Messiah. The empty words, the empty praise they had sung for years. It should have been manifested in their encouragement towards him, but the exact opposite. They tore him down. They pushed him away. That scorn, that social pain, I'm wording it as here. His grief from this rejection is well expressed in Matthew. It's chapter 22, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. It's very reasonable that he expresses this grief, this longing of heart, this disappointment. We do too. How much more so the perfect man recognizing the depravity of their hearts to reject him as the Messiah. But let us remember that this pain and rejection were an inherent part of the messianic task. This was not a surprise to him. Uh, He knew from the foundation of the world, the destiny before him, the path that he would walk. As Isaiah words it, he is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Experienced it many times in many places throughout his ministry. So suffering in all its facets from a variety of people, was key to the work of the Messiah. Uh, As I've already alluded to, this is a key connection with that text in James. Because the Christian life, friends, if we're going to be like our Savior, we're going to take some heat similarly. Obviously not meritoriously for the benefit of anybody else. doesn't help us in terms of accumulating points to get us a better status in heaven by suffering at the hands of the wicked. But we do connect with Christ. We understand and he sympathizes with us as we are suffering. The Christian life is one of lowliness insofar as it will be filled with suffering. Consequences of the fall, whether it be health or such, uh, mockery from men who hate Christ and therefore hate us, ultimately we have a good end, right? Our destination, as I refer to. We have a good end, whereas the one who in the short term seems to prosper, they're going to be the ones with a desperate end. 
So that's the second facet there. The second thing Christ was destined to, to suffer, suffer many things. Third, verse 21c, and be killed. It's so brief. <laughs> Part of it here, as I'll get to in our conclusion, this is what uh, Peter keyed in on, saying, no, this can't be. But it is essential, right? What would the Messiah be without the death on the cross? He wouldn't be a savior for sin. He wouldn't be a substitutionary atonement. So Christ suffered, but it's essential that he suffered unto death. The Son of Man must be killed. Not might be injured, not might be hurt a little bit or a lot, but he must be killed because it is only by his death that our sins are taken away. Uh, Don't think that it was solely because of narrow-minded, power-hungry, ignorant first-century religious authorities that Jesus had to die, as if if there had been better accountability for the judicial system or uh, one more sound-minded person on the Sanhedrin, then the rules could have been followed and it would have been a just trial, right? No, that was not the destiny that Jesus entered into. Because he didn't uh, bleed to death, right? He didn't merely die of asphyxiation in terms of a physical cause. What was it that killed Jesus on the cross? It was our sin. The weight of our sin put him there And it was the wrath of God that led to his death. So the physical steps of history, as I'll refer to it, that brought him to hanging on the cross is only in an outward sense what killed him. We, our sin, our sins killed Jesus. He knew he would be killed. He knew he had to be killed. And he did so for the sake of others. That is the extraordinary thing about his death. It wasn't just a physical death. It wasn't just pain. It wasn't just suffering. It was a death that accomplished very much. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. Only the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God could accomplish that for which Christ came to die. Before we move on to the fourth and final act of this sequence, uh, I want to pause just for a moment to reflect on this. I don't want to rush through this to consider that he suffered and was killed. Not only for himself, or not at all did he die for himself. He was sinless. He had no sin in himself to atone for. He was, is, always will be the divine son, right? He already had it all. When Satan in the um, wilderness offered the kingdoms of this world, Jesus was like, I I don't need any help from you, right? You're offering me something that's already been promised to me. In Romans 5, Paul posits that someone perhaps might die for a good man. Why did Jesus die for the wicked? By choice, to accomplish the Father's will, to gather a people to himself. Jesus died for bad men. He died for sinners like you and me. Well, that moves us to a fourth point. There at the end of verse 21. And be raised the third day. Let us never forget that Christianity does not end at the cross. It's a common Christian symbol. It's absolutely important we don't skip over it, as a lot of um, so-called Christians want to skip skip over the ugly parts, the difficult parts. 
Christianity is not Christianity without the substitutionary atonement accomplished on the cross. But also, very, very importantly, there is another step in the story. Jesus, Jesus concludes here with the resurrection being raised on the third day. His death on the cross, his rising from the grave, together are vitally important. As this word in Romans 4.25, he was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. If Jesus simply died and was not resurrected, we're still dead in our sins. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, and let me read the whole section there. It starts at verse 14. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So Jesus' resurrection is essential because it's linked to our resurrection. If we're not going to be resurrected, it means he wasn't. And if he wasn't, then we're all liars. Because the apostles, without exception, speak of it. So friends, it is essential, that last clause, be raised on the third day. It is his victory over the grave, his rising from the dead, that secures our hope for eternal life. When a seed falls to the ground and dies in the process of sprouting and new growth, that produces new life. It produces that multiplied harvest spoken of in John 12. Death, indeed, leads to new life. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection leads to new life for all his people. Well, coming then to a conclusion, which, forgive me, is not a proper conclusion because I'm going to add more information, but sort of seeing how the gospel writer here structures this text, I see verses 22 to 28 as a conclusion. I will note by way of fairness, the word there at the beginning of 24 uh, it does not require that that paragraph where Jesus spoke to his disciples is like immediately part of the conversation, and that's why it makes sense that the uh, New King James editors here that I'm looking for put a little section heading there. Could have been 30 seconds later, could have been an hour later, a day later, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's tagged on here as part of the same conversation, so we will deal with it together. So I see here, as it's recorded for us in Matthew 16, this is how first Peter and then Jesus responds to their reaction to this roadmap for the future. Jesus tells them, this is where we're headed, right? I must. It's essential. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's essential that I go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the hands of these people, be killed, and be raised the third day. And what's their response? (laughs) Pretty human. Uh, Peter speaks first. Lesson there about speaking first. Verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Another interesting lesson about conversation dynamics. I guess he's wise enough at this point not to speak up in front of the whole crowd. Uh, It says there, Peter took him aside. That's wise. If you've got something unique to say, something you think is a little pointed, he's wise to say it privately. 
Second point, notice it says he began to rebuke him. Uh, I take, uh, there's two ways to read that. One, it's his opening line, and he said much more that isn't recorded here, which is entirely plausible. Alternate view is that Jesus cut him off. He began to rebuke Jesus. And clearly in verse 23, Jesus says, stop. That is not where we're going. I favor the second view. So Jesus in response says, he turned to Peter Uh, He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That is a stinging rebuke, a very, very strong response. Peter, and it's perfectly warranted, of course, because Peter spoke devilish words when he suggested that Jesus should not fulfill the mission of the cross. He had man's priorities and interests in mind, not God's. Jesus teaches us here to be wary of distractions. And it's easy for us, I think, myself, to think little distractions. You know, whatever's on my phone, the news stories for the day, the message somebody just sent me, the other little project I've got, these are all, you know, they make sense as distractions. But let us be mindful to see what's really behind at least some of those distractions. I'm not saying all news checking, all social media, all side work projects are of the devil. But let us see and be mindful of at least where some of them or some aspects of many of them come from. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. We must ask the Lord for discernment. Where is this distraction coming from? Where is this idea to do something a little different or to put this on hold in order to do this first, right? What is going on here? What is the impetus for this? Because, of course, it would have been sin for Jesus to seek victory in any other way. That's the point of the temptation of the wilderness is that Satan comes with a proper destination for Jesus' victory, but to do it a different way. The ends and the means are both essential according to God's holy will. Peter tempted Jesus, the same lines as the devil in the wilderness. So when someone entices you, friends, with an easier yet ungodly way, a quicker, a smoother, seemingly quicker or smoother way, we must respond in clear terms. No, I will be mindful of God, his word, and his ways. I will not by grace, heed the alluring suggestions made by men. That's the substance of Jesus' response here to Peter. So his first statement in verse 23 drew the lines for what he himself must do, that is, the ruler must suffer, be killed, and be raised. And so to suggest otherwise was fleshly and carnal. And then verses 24 to 27, Jesus, and again, whether it was 10 seconds later or 10 hours, it's unspecified. But here in these verses, he draws the lines for what the disciples must do. Now, this is a general instruction, having um, broadened the conversation from Peter pulling him aside privately. So not only was it wrong for Peter to desire Jesus to take the route of self-preservation, but Peter and all the disciples, and I would suggest all of us as his disciples today, must know that we too must give up our lives. Self-preservation at first looks rewarding, but in the end, the cost is very, very high. This isn't to say that we're on a literal suicide mission when he speaks here of giving up your life. 
but rather our personal desires, our priorities, our goals. Insofar as they're personal, right? Us asserting our will outside of God. Those things must be put to death. If you desire to enjoy and set up a really nice life in Adam, it's going to be taken down, right? A life in Christ will succeed, and it takes many variations, so I don't want to impose on you a particular manifestation of that. So again, if you lose your life for Christ's sake, verse 25, you will find it. The Adamic life, that is the life of Adam, might achieve earthly riches and honor for a little bit, but not long term. And even the little bit it might accomplish for a while pales in comparison to the cost, ultimately. As verse 26 states it, you will lose your soul, you will perish in hell. So, friends, today and the days to come, let us consider if and how, this is very convicting for me, if and how we desire to save our own lives. And again, by that I mean our priorities, our little goals, our projects. I have to ask myself how and if I'm resisting the life of Christ. What aspects of life in Adam am I holding on to, not willing to let go? How hard is God going to have to pry the fingers off of that, right? So let's learn the lesson sooner to be more yielding. With a proper heavenly perspective, we do see the foolishness of it, right? Parents, we look at the mistakes our children make, and we're like, that was really not smart. But let's look in the mirror and see the mistakes we make the things we hold on to, that they may learn from us, and that we may grow later, if not sooner. So with that proper heavenly perspective, we do see the foolishness of it, but that is precisely the problem. We lack the perspective. We don't have the self-awareness to see the foolishness. Our perspective is too often me, now, my rights, my desires, my privileges. But, and this is not a new (laughs) revelation for you, It's not about you. Uh, It's not about me. It's about our neighbor. It's about Christ and his priorities. It's about your spouse. It's about your siblings. It's about others. It's also not about now entirely. It's about tomorrow. It's about eternity. Certainly there is an aspect of now in terms of a stepping stone to the future. But overall, it's about the future. Where are we headed? What will that look like? How will it be accomplished? And that third point I referred to a moment ago, it's not about our rights. Because in Christ, we have none. We've died. Dead man doesn't have rights. We're alive in Christ, yes, and we give it all over to him. Everything we have, even the breath that sustains us, is a gift from him. Much less the clothes, the technology, the books, the building, the home, the jobs we get to enjoy, the food. All of that is a gift from him. So friends, may Christ be magnified as we live our lives in his service, laying down all for him. He was set on a good course. We share in that victory as he died for us. And may we have faith to walk our paths according to his calling. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your uh, holiness in putting together a divine plan that was perfectly set out to accomplish your glory, to redeem your people, to glorify your son. Uh, Humanly speaking, it doesn't look like a good plan. It was painful. It was slow. It was gory, even. 
But Lord, you had a good purpose in it, and it was accomplished without a flaw. May we have spiritual eyes to see that beauty, that holiness. And as we persevere through our daily tasks, may we apply those spiritual eyes to see that we are serving you, that we are walking by faith to uh, be counter to the earthly sight that is all around us. We live in a culture not novel in that people desire comfort. People always have. People always will apart from Christ. May we seek only that which is of the Lord, whether comfortable or painful, whether easy or hard. May we rest in you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.